Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Dehumanization is a very common theme in the history of warfare and in the history of, of mass uh, violence. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayad. And some of the rhetoric we have seen in the, in the ongoing conflict is disturbingly familiar. Talking about the enemy as non-human creatures in human form, as uh, beasts. And that's extremely dangerous because, of course, when we're dealing with monsters, nothing is out of bounds. On Ideas, we're exploring dehumanization in the past and present and its relationship to conflict. It really started uh, in 1990. When the war started, it was uh, now out there in a newspaper calling Tutsi Inyensi cockroaches. I asked my parents, why are they doing this to us? Why are they hating us so much? And my parents, in the final defeat of despair and lack of any idea of hope, I guess, they answered, we don't know why this is happening to us. Why does dehumanization happen? And how does it change perpetrators and victims? Dehumanization is kind of a means to an end. It's a way of uh, disabling very natural inhibitions that we have against doing terrible things to, to other people. It, it, it not only makes such acts permissible for us, but often makes them obligatory. It becomes our duty to destroy the monsters. What is it that first drew you to the study of dehumanization? The answer to that question has two components. One is autobiographical. I grew up in the Deep South in the 50s and 60s, where raw racism was all around me. And I grew up in an extended family with my maternal grandparents, who were Jewish refugees from Eastern Europe. And uh, Jews of that generation from that place had sadly, always stories to tell about the persecutions of, of Jewish people in Europe. So those were two important influences, and they left a residue in my psyche. Uh, my name is David Livingston Smith. I am a professor of philosophy at the University of New England in Biddeford, Maine. Long afterwards, when I became an academic, I was working on a book uh, about war, and I noticed that wartime propaganda often represented enemies as subhuman creatures, dangerous subhuman creatures, or filthy subhuman creatures, or animals that are fun to hunt for, like rabbits and, and so on. What is your working definition of dehumanization? Well, that's a very important question, because the term dehumanization is used in a host of ways. Um, it's, it's acquired 
a large number of meanings and tends to cast more heat than light. The, the point is really we should specify what we mean when we use the term dehumanization. So here's what I mean. Dehumanization is the attitude of conceiving of others as less than human creatures. I didn't say animals, I said creatures, mm -hmm. because in very toxic forms of dehumanization, the dehumanized other is conceived of as a demonic or monstrous being. What do you think makes the human mind vulnerable to dehumanization? Two things, mm -hmm. uh, or actually three things. Okay. So one is the fact that human society depends on deference to experts. So that's what makes culture happen, right? That's how how traditions and knowledge can become cumulative. Mm -hmm. We we divide cognitive labor and we leave certain things to those who are supposed to know, granting them this kind of authority. It's that uh, attitude of what philosophers call epistemic de deference uh, that makes it the case that we are vulnerable to accepting the view that others who may look human, mm -hmm. who may be outwardly indistinguishable from human beings are not really human on the inside where it matters. Yeah. So that's one. Like political leaders. Exactly. Yeah. Now, it could be political leaders, it could be scientists, it could be politicians, mm -hmm. as you said, uh, it could be right-wing radio hosts, it could be religious talking leaders. Be religious leaders, yes. Anyone who's invested with that authority. And historically, we've seen examples of all of these and more. Yeah. Number two is hierarchical thinking, mm -hmm. the idea of higher and lower. You can't have subhuman or less than human unless you have higher and lower. Mm -hmm. you know, if there were a mosquito buzzing around my room here and I swatted it, and you were to say, how could you take the life of that precious creature? Well, how am I going to respond? It's just a mosquito, right? It's, it's life doesn't matter. It's lower in the hierarchy. Hierarchical thinking has no place in biology, by the way. It's mm. not at all a scientific notion. It's an ideological construction, uh, which we need because, because uh, we eat other living things. Yeah, that's how we survive. So we to, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, the third is is the one where there is a robust research literature, and that's known as psychological essentialism. So psychological essentialism, the term was coined in 1989 in a paper titled Psychological Essentialism. And the idea was this, that we human beings are disposed to divide the world up into what philosophers call natural kinds. These are like things like oxygen and carbon or biological species, categories of things that are exist independently of our classificatory projects, right? So artifacts are not natural kinds, mm -hmm. but natural kinds are just out there in nature and uh, um, they, as, as Plato put it, carve nature at its joints. That's one component. The other component is that what makes any individual a member of one of these natural kinds is not its appearance, 
but it is what it is deep inside, and they call that the essence. Mm. Yeah. And this is true of any living thing, and, and we find this very easy to accept. Uh, just as, say, if we're, I don't know, um, watching a horror film, we find it easy to accept that the vampire looks human but isn't really human on the inside mm -hmm. where it matters. Mm -hmm. That's important because it explains how someone can look at another, another who is outwardly indistinguishable from anyone who would be considered a member of their kind, a fellow human being, and think, yeah, they may look that way, but they're not really hmm. human. So we dehumanize others when we are persuaded. I'm putting all three things together now. Yes. When we are persuaded that the other possesses an essence which is lower on the hierarchy than the human. Am I right to say that the 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 starting point, the most maybe the catalyst to all this, is the persuasion? Yes. Yeah, people don't just spontaneously dehumanize others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dehumanization has to work against our instinctive recognition of the humanness of others. Yeah. And that's that's a little bit hopeful, actually. It is, because there's something that could be done about it. So we are exquisitely sensitive to, to indications of humanness, mm -hmm. particularly in response to the sight of a human face. There's something about the way the brain processes faces which makes them special. Now... What that implies is, first of all, when we gaze into another person's face, and, you know, as you and I are doing right now on the, on the screen, we just can't help seeing human. That's automatic. It's boom. You can't turn it off. But at the same time, if we have been exposed to dehumanizing propaganda and ideology, mm -hmm. Um, from what we regard as a credible source, we we tend to take that on board. In, in very broad strokes, I just wonder how central you think dehumanization has been in the ensuing conflict between uh, Israel and Hamas right now. Well, it's certainly played a role, and that role is difficult to quantify. Yeah. Um, dehumanization makes it easier, psychologically speaking, to harm people. So it would be a mistake. In fact, it's always a mistake, I think, to see dehumanization as sort of a primary motivation for conflict, for atrocity, and so on. Dehumanization is kind of a means to an end. It's mm -hmm. a way of uh, disabling very natural inhibitions that we have against doing terrible things to to other people. It, it it not only makes such acts permissible for us, uh, but often makes them obligatory. It becomes our duty to destroy the monsters. It's clear dehumanization is at play on both sides of this conflict, in words and in deeds. David has thought about it in both contexts. First, when this round of violence began October 7th with the Hamas attacks. I think whenever we have a situation where we're tempted to ask ourselves, 
How could anyone do something like that? The Israeli military showed us the hole in the fence, and then we basically followed their path as they went killing and kidnapping through this community. We saw houses that were burned out. Dehumanization is a potential answer to that question. But here we have a little bit more because there is a track record of dehumanizing propaganda from groups like Hamas about Jewish people, not simply Israelis, Jewish people generally. David Livingston Smith has also written about dehumanizing rhetoric by Israeli officials, in particular Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Galant's October 9th declaration, we are, quote, fighting against human animals. So I read about his statement. I was very, very concerned uh, because his statement characterizing Hamas as human animals suggests the operation of a very, very dangerous sort of dehumanization, one that often accompanies genocidal aggression. It will take me a little bit to explain this, but I'll be as concise as I can. One necessary condition Mm -hmm. for being a monster is to be a fusion of two different mutually exclusive kinds. Right. So think, (laughs) think of horror movies. Think of zombies that are alive and dead simultaneously. Think of werewolves that are wolves and human Absolutely. simultaneously. Mm-hmm. The other component is that the other has to be seen as physically dangerous to be a monster. Yeah. So malevolent, wanting to kill you or harm mm-hmm. you in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. So now let's come back to the human animals remark. Yeah. You see what's going on there. He didn't say they're animals. Mm-hmm. He didn't say they are humans who do terrible things. He said they are human animals. And that's the recipe for monstrosity. And of course, the the element of physical dangerousness is already built into this. So when I read this, I wrote an essay on it, in fact, say, look, this is tantamount to to calling them monsters. And that's extremely dangerous because, of course, when we're dealing with monsters, Nothing is out of bounds, right? The monster is an embodiment of evil. Now, shortly after that, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu characterized them as bloodthirsty monsters and said, well, there it is. There it is. is." David argues that even in cases where people commit extreme violence, painting them as subhuman denies what humans are capable of. Demonizing people is always incorrect. There aren't demons, there aren't monsters. These are fictional. There are people who do really bad things. Yeah. And the impulse to think of them as subhuman or monstrous or de- demonic is exactly something that we should not yield to. Because in effect, we're dehumanizing them. We're, we're trying to create moral distance. We're trying to say they're nothing like us. But the problem is they are like us. (laughs) They show us what human beings are capable of, and they hold up a mirror to us, as it were. And and that's something we should take really seriously if we're genuinely concerned in, in making the world a better place.
What is the possible consequence of that kind of language, whether it's in this or any other situation, well, being normalized? Uh, the, the worst possible consequence is exterminationist violence. You know, kill the monsters, get rid of the demons. Um, I truly hope that that's not the case here. Um, but it, it, it could be. It, it depends upon how widely this sort of conception is shared. And a very, very important point, to what extent it extends beyond Hamas. So when a group of people is racialized, that tends to happen. So there isn't really a discrimination made between the perpetrators of violence and everyone else who is put into the same, the same racial category. Right, yeah. The same race or the same ethnic yeah. background. In other words, civilians. The failure to, to distinguish okay. between the enemy and the group from which the enemy, to which the enemy belongs um kind of lowers uh any kind of you know moral hesitation towards killing uh, the other this is johannes lang senior researcher at the danish institute for international studies we see that in many genocides as a kind of early step uh, for example in the in the anti-partisan um, actions during world war 2 on the eastern front where you were at the beginning were supposed to kill you know, uh, potential enemies, and then very quickly the f there's this failure to distinguish between the enemy and and the, the, the group in general, women, children, um, and then that's a very dangerous uh, path to go down. Um, mm -hmm. And that's on both sides, right? The, the Hamas attack on Israel was also fundamentally this, that there is this failure to distinguish between uh, all the others and and the true enemy others. Uh, the group yeah. becomes the enemy. And so often civilians are targeted and it's they who disproportionately pay the price. So to understand more about how these dynamics have shaped past conflicts and their consequences for the civilians caught in their midst, we turn now to two people whose lives have been profoundly shaped by dehumanization and conflict. My name is Yasmin Yusufovic. Uh, currently, as a profession, I'm a banker and a financial investigator. And uh, for the audience uh, to get the better grasp of why I'm in joining this program is I'm a genocide survivor from Srebrenica, which is a city uh, in eastern Bosnia. Uh, my name is Leo Kabarissa. And I'm a teacher at York Region District School Board. I've been teaching for 25 years now. Yeah, growing up in Rwanda from a young age, I can say that I had a good life. People would be thinking about the divisions in Rwanda. When you are so young, you don't see it. Both men grew up without much awareness of racial or ethnic division in their communities. Our village was uh, ethnically mixed and we had, uh, myself, I'm a Muslim and a Bosniak, and the village was consisting also with a uh, Ser Serb population, which is the Orthodox Christian. And before the war uh, started, we didn't feel that difference. Me as a child, 
my family never pointed out those differences or had the need to explain those differences to me. Culturally, we couldn't imagine our day without sharing it with uh, the, uh, the Serbs, our neighbors. For an illustration, I knew as a kid uh, that what the church bell church bells meant, and I learned to orient my day according to church bells. And that's uh, the difference that we knew were were strengthening in a sense of uh, beauty of the difference, as in we have our holidays, they have their holidays, but the joy is uh, equal, the joy is same. So we should share those holidays, we should share that culture. But as Yasmin and Leo got older, things started to change. For Leo, it happened in elementary school. They were teaching us what, what is the history of Rwanda, but in my opinion, it was a propaganda, teaching about the Tutsi, teaching about the Hutus, and the more they were talking about it, it was a, a way of wakening up people and see that we are different. And... Like next day, you see people changing, seeing you as different. And uh, when they were, they did it. I didn't even know who I was. I didn't think about it. So I went to home. I spoke to them about it. What was happening? I said, "Yeah, all kids are the same, but you have to understand that uh, some people don't accept to see the harmony within people." And so. My aunt was much older than me, who was living with us, was more open about it. And she told me, you, with your nose, you, it's so obvious that you are a Tutsi. When they start killing a Tutsi, you will never survive. When they start killing Tutsis, you'll never survive. I never told it to my parents or showed it to anyone else, but I was going through the mirror and uh, look at myself and start pushing my nose to see that it can be different. And I was pushing and almost crying to see that I couldn't see any change. But I had a fear that this can happen to me. On the schoolyard, Leo sometimes heard kids calling each other snake or cockroach. At the time, they seemed like childhood taunts. But the elders heard it differently. They knew that this name, calling you this name, it's more than just a name. It's a way of saying uh, you are less human than us. I understood when I was uh, much older because uh, what's happened in, uh, in the genocide, it really started uh, in 1990. When the war started, it was uh, now out there in a newspaper calling it to Inyensi cockroaches. And in a newspaper, there was a Ten Commandments of Hutus like uh, not trusting a Tutsi, and it was uh, published. The government didn't condemn this. I saw the faces of people changing. People were so close to you, start, starting to question about you. Even uh, close friends coming to visit you, but hide. And so other Hutus don't see the association between you and him. I remember someone who went to high school with me. He was my neighbor. He was a, a Hutu, was a, like a good friend for me. And I saw him coming to see me late in the evening, and so people don't see him. And uh, for Tutsi, 
there was a fear. It's when I started feeling like I have to run away. The language uh, would come later on in our communication channel, as one would say. Later on, when we were already uh, expelled from our homes towards the countryside of Bosnia, uh, through news and through uh, whatever news channels we could pick up, our identity was kind of forced onto us in that negative sense. We were being called Muslims derogatively. Later on, as the war developed, we started being called Mujahideen as a derogative, terrorists and Islamists as as a, a threat to uh, European culture, threat to European way of life. We came to Srebrenica by the end of war. And before we came to Srebrenica, we changed like three places. Srebrenica being the most important and the most, how should I say, defining moment of our tragedy during the war and being the place where the gen- where genocide happened. So throughout all that displacements and um, being chased after, I tried to communicate with my parents, trying to ask them what's going on. Who is chasing us? Why are we being chased? And hanging out with other family members and other community that kind of, you know, forcibly uh, was collected in those areas where we lived, I picked up some terms. I learned that there are Serbs, as in I, I kind of realized that there are Serbs, there are Chetniks. So I had to ask my parents, are the Serbs hating us? And I remember vividly my parents repeatedly, every time I would ask them, uh, are Serbs hating us? They would force a differentiation between a Serb as a major ethnic group and Chetniks as a nationalistic subgroups. So even then, they tried to kind of teach me not to hate everyone, not to have that blanketed hate, and not to have the hate towards the other overall, just to differentiate the blame. So what I wanted to say, the dominating uh, feeling I had was fear of that unknown other whom I tried to understand and define within my own grasp of reality and inability to, to grasp all of that hate that I felt being directed towards me as an individual and my family as the first collectivity I knew as a kid. Both Yasmin and Leo's stories highlight how dehumanization is often imposed from above, from politicians, media, teachers, and other authorities. People don't just spontaneously dehumanize others. You heard Leo mention the term propaganda. On this exact topic, you've argued that patterns of propaganda are especially effective at sowing the seeds of dehumanization. Can you give an example of that? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, uh, a paper that was published in 1941 that has influenced my thinking very greatly on this. David Livingston Smith. It was by a remarkable man named Roger Monicarl, who had a PhD in philosophy, a PhD in anthropology, and was a psychoanalyst. 
1932, a friend of, of his, who was a diplomat, uh, invited him to uh, visit Germany to listen to Hitler and Goebbels giving their campaign speeches for the, the momentous 1932 election. And Monikar was fascinated. In 1941, he published a paper called The Psychology of Propaganda on this. Uh, Monte Carl said that when he observed Hitler and Goebbels doing their song and dance, it involved three steps. And the first step, kind of counterintuitively, was to get the uh, audience depressed. Everything is bleak. You, we've let down the nation. We've been humiliated. We're the laughing stock of the world, and so on and so forth. Then he says, when they are rolling around in an orgy of self-pity, the speaker changes their tune. Hitler says, yes, but you see, it's not your fault. It's the Jews and the communists. You know, they're, they, they stabbed us in the back during World War I. They are trying to destroy our great race and great nation, etc., etc. This, by the way, is where dehumanizing propaganda often comes in. Then the third step is the offer of salvation. Join us, we can rescue you, everything's gonna be okay. Uh, only I can make Germany great again, so on and so forth. So that gives one hope, right? It's, it's, it's selling salvation. First creating distress, then selling salvation. Now, in 2015, when I heard Donald Trump give his very first speech, throwing his hat into the ring of the, you know, the American uh, contestation for the Republican nomination for the presidency, I was extremely alarmed because he followed precisely to the letter that pattern. And it's a very, very, very powerful process. You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Ideas, we're exploring the idea of dehumanization across time and space. Dehumanization is a recurring factor in many of the last century's worst atrocities, from the Holocaust to the Rwandan genocide. Perpetrators referring to their victims as vermin or cockroaches. But the exact role dehumanization plays in conflict is still contested. That observation that dehumanization is part of virtually all cases of genocide mastery, um, at least in modern uh, times, 
that has led to the conclusion that we have to psychologically dehumanize the other in order to be able to kill them. When when I started getting into the field, was that was this uh, assumption that it was a necessary precursor? I don't think it is, and I think in fact that it makes certain things more difficult to understand about violence. My name is Johannes Lang. I'm a senior researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies, where I study uh, various aspects of the psychology of war and, and political violence. The first generation of genocide scholars came shortly after World War II and uh, and also developed in the in the period of the Vietnam War, and it was a particular historical moment. Many of the first scholars of genocide were also activists, and they had this uh, hope that if we can overcome prejudice, if we can challenge dehumanization, uh, we can, we can uh, build a better world. The study of, of uh, genocidal perpetrators came much later, and that really started in the in the 90s uh, famously with Christopher Browning's book Ordinary Men uh, and Daniel Goldhagen's book Ordinary Germans and all this discussion about uh, about the perpetrators were they driven by ideology were they driven to commit their acts because of the situation the power of the situation they were in and it, it was in this field that I came and uh, it was this work that I read and, and, the, and the kind of micro studies of the perpetrators. So all of a sudden, those explanations seem to, to need, <laughs> at least uh, as a psychologist, wanting to understand the human reality of, uh, of, uh, of genocide and mass trusty and try to understand the, the psychology of the perpetrators those larger explanations uh, seemed uh, inadequate. And so that was my entry into, into these questions. And, and, and I encountered this, uh, this assumption and this claim again and again that the perpetrators dehumanized their victims. They turned them into objects. They, turned, they saw them as kind of subhuman, less than human. And that made it easy for them to kill them. That made it possible for them to kill them. And that's not exactly what I saw in, in, in the material. I also saw the doubt. I saw the psychological consequences on the perpetrators. I saw the ideological work that they constantly had to do to convince themselves that this was the right thing to do. Uh, I came across these encounters between per perpetrators and victims. And I felt that the concept of dehumanization provided a story that was too neat and that it obscured certain things about the violence that are important to understand. And what we need to understand, Johannes argues, is how violence is justified. Violence becomes possible primarily by justifying the violence, not by reducing the moral limits on violence. So dehumanization has been thought of as a mechanism that reduces or removes the moral inhibitions against killing innocent uh, other human beings. Whereas I think it's more useful to see it as part of justifying violence against other humans. 
Johannes Lang points to a study that explored the role dehumanization plays in what's known as instrumental violence. Violence, people believe, is ethically wrong, yet necessary to achieve their end goal. The study I mentioned is, uh, was conducted by an American psychologist called Tate Ray and, and his colleagues um, in the U.S. in 2017. And uh, the particular example I was describing was um, an imagined drone strike in Iraq uh, targeting uh, terrorists, but um, framing the violence either in terms of the civilian casualties or in terms of the actual killing of terrorists. And what they found was that dehumanization played a role in the first case, in the, in the violence against civilians. The researchers hypothesized that dehumanization might enable a form of apathy toward the victim's suffering that helps to enable what they called instrumental violence that would have otherwise seemed immoral. So, so it was a useful psychological mechanism for them to be able to support something that they found morally problematic uh, in pursuit of, of, a, of a goal that they thought was morally justified. But on the other hand, the, um, the researchers uh, found something really interesting, and it, that was that dehumanization played no role in support for, or at least there was no correlation between the uh, dehumanization and support for the killing of terrorists. And the people in the study thought that it was desirable to kill terrorists. It was morally right to kill terrorists. They had done something uh, really bad, and this is uh, retaliation, or we are preventing the terrorists from killing innocents. So not only did they not need dehumanization uh, in this context, but they, dehumanization would have undermined the meaning of the violence. In other words, dehumanization is not necessary when the violence is seen as morally justified. That idea that people can deliberately inflict suffering on those they see as fully human is disquieting. But for Johannes, it's key to understanding the nature of violence. I mean, some of the worst aspects of violence are are intensely human. You know, think about humiliation, think about torture, think about, uh, you know, many perpetrators express this sense of profound transgression and that can be both shocking traumatizing it can break them but it can also be exhilarating it can fill them with the sense of power and you know um elevate them to this kind of sense of almost being you know superhuman and so there's so many things about violence so many aspects of violence that that only make sense in terms of 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 the human The purpose of genocidal uh, and dehumanizing propaganda is not primarily to instill this mindset in individual perpetrators, but it is to create this uh, shared framework, you know, ide ideological and cultural framework within which it is necessary to kill certain people, to eliminate certain people. And so it, it creates a normative framework that in many ways 
flips, you know, the moral order. Uh, where, as uh, Hannah Arendt wrote about Eichmann, thou shalt not kill uh, becomes thou shall kill, or you know, you have to kill. Dehumanizing rhetoric and the, and dehumanizing behavior, dehumanizing institutions like the concentration camps, for example, they create a, a social framework within which it is normal to kill, it is normal to um, ignore the basic rights and dignity of, of other human beings. And the perpetrators operate within this frame as, you know, whether they really believe this or not is secondary to the fact that this is their reality. This is the reality they're operating within. But that means that this reality is full of contradictions because they are encountering victims all the time. So that's what I mean by the, you know, when I say that reality sometimes is worse than what the concept of dehumanization can capture because it's, it also shows the humanity of the perpetrators in this perverted and horrible way. I think that the theory of dehumanization makes kind of encourages us not to really take that reality in and to uh, and to um, to grapple with the fact that human beings are are fully capable of killing other human beings while recognizing that they're human. Whether dehumanization operates as a disinhibitor or as a justification, the consequences are devastating. Leo Cabalisa says the knowledge that he was seen as an object to be exterminated weighed on him constantly. I lost in a period of two months, maybe close to 12 kilograms because I couldn't sleep. I was uh, pretending to be normal wearing a mask and go like you are normal, but inside you live with a fear. And there's even a time I thought about it, I should die. Uh, soldiers came to my house and they were looking for borrowing uh, uh, machetes, the things that they wanted to clear the bushes where they were going to put their guns. And when people saw them going to my house, they thought that they are looking for me. And I was with a Hutu friend and I said, if I have to die, maybe it will be a gun. I left him, I went to my house. And the people who saw me were saying, where are you going? Where are you going? Don't go there. Don't go. They are looking for you. I said, no, no, no. Not necessarily looking for me. But inside was a feeling, yes, maybe they are looking for me. But I should go. And it's done. I cannot take it anymore. Leo continued to live with the terror until he left for Canada. Yasmin and his family were forcibly displaced to Srebrenica. And I remember waking up one morning as if all hell broke loose. Uh, literally, from all the shells and everything that Serbian forces, Serb forces had thrown at us, the, the ground was shaking. And again, I asked my parents, why are they doing this to us? Why are they hating us so much? And my parents, in the final defeat of despair and and uh, weak, not weakness, but um, um, lack of 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 uh, any idea of hope, I guess, uh, they said they answered, "We don't know why this is happening to us." 
three days uh, was the uh, whole old ordeal of the genocide where we were literally herded into the area of one old factory in Srebrenica, which was the UN base, ironically. And after three days, UN gave us over to Serb forces and my father was taken away from in front of me. As we were taken away, there was some kind of a trans transport uh, organized for us. There were buses, trucks, and, and, and cattle trucks. And this is the first time I have, I remember being addressed directly as a cattle. Uh, I remember having this uh, total paralysis of all my muscles and everything. I immediately froze and I felt some kind of a, it might be fun, funny to say, but out of body experience because uh, I could see myself from above somewhere and I could see the field uh, where my father was taken uh, to. Where, uh, uh, to be to join other men that were separated for uh, killing later on. I remember seeing trucks from above the factory where we were where we were held, and people still walking towards those trucks. Even to this day, this experience is inexplicable to me. So I'm taking it just as I remember it. Uh, feelings, I literally had. None. I was incapable of thinking. And all I remember, I was kind of visually communicating with my father, where he, where he gestured with his finger uh, over his mouth towards me, looking me at, in, in the eyes, uh, which I understood. This gesture I understood as if he was telling me, don't cry, be silent and just go on. Yasmin and his mother eventually returned to their home village. Demographically, it's a wholly different place because half of the population was severed, murdered. And what's worse, you had generations, uh, literally generations wiped out, so the village can't regenerate. Uh, but the survivors who went back to live there it's kind of a cold indifference. We acknowledge uh, each other's existence there. We acknowledge the right of everyone to live freely. But it's no more like if we had to choose, should we stay alone or go hang out with somebody uh, of our previous, uh, of uh, former uh, neighbors from before the war, we would choose to stay alone. What I feel in the village is like from our side, meaning the survivor's side, there is nothing to talk about. It's not the villagers of the other ethnicity that we can direct our blame towards so that we at least have someone to blame because they don't have, uh, they don't have this responsibility to bury the blame of uh, all the ideology and everything. Uh, there is this uh, lingering disappointment in this neighborhood that we and the betrayal of neighborhood that we had before. So 
why would we even start rebuilding it if there is a risk of that thing turning against us again? So how do you come back from dehumanization? And how do we resist dehumanization as it's happening? Leo Cabalisa thinks about these questions every day in the classroom. No nation is immune to the genocide. It can happen everywhere. And it's why when I'm here as a teacher myself, I cannot tolerate bullying. I cannot tolerate anything related to putting down someone else. And I see it happens everywhere. Kids will, would point fingers to another child, and it's a joke for them, but we address it as a, it's never a joke. It starts as a joke, and the next step is to believe that it's the reality. It's what you think, it's the reality, the way you see someone is, the way you interact with the person. For Johannes Lang, education is key, but it's not only a matter of education. So what is it a matter of then, if we're looking at kind of the, the greater good, what is it a matter of if it's not a matter of more enlightenment? Yeah, it's, at the end of the day, it's a question of power. You know, I think in that sense, I think it's, it's of course, it's good uh, to, uh, to develop an understanding of, of the other and to humanize the, the other and, and try to, you know, develop empathy and all of this, but but it's also important to, to remember that human beings are also motivated to think in certain ways uh, because it is uh, politics and it is power. And it is, if it's happening in our minds, it's because uh, power wants it to happen in our minds you know, and that it's motivi- motivated by something. So I think it's much more useful to address the root causes uh, of dehumanization rather than treating it as a psychological problem that we can cure by psychological means. Last thing is, what are the strategies that you think, one or two or whatever, however many you can give us, that are most effective for resisting dehumanizing or dehumanization propaganda? I think first and foremost, the understanding that we're all vulnerable to dehumanizing propaganda. It's not just those evil people over there who are dehumanizers. David Livingston Smith. We are all capable of this if the right forces are brought to bear on us. And that then encourages an attitude of vigilance. It's not foolproof by any means, but it's helpful. Similarly, real historical education is important. You know, nations are born in violence and virtually everyone has blood on their hands historically. And humanization has played a a role historically in the histories of many, many, many nations, if not all nations. But these awful aspects of history are very often uh, sanitized. And that contributes to the illusion that we are above it. See, understanding that these things have happened in the past then sort of inculcates an attitude, ideally, of of humility. If I can take one realization from my experience of the war, is that the world is cruel. People are cruel. But we also have a choice of what kind of person to become. Uh, Thanks to my mother's upbringing, uh, she was constantly reminding me 
not to feed hate, not to feel hate towards uh, a generalized uh, group of people, whomever uh, those may be. In my context of the war experience, the Serbs, uh, the other. Uh, she reminded me constantly, albeit not being able to explain why that is not uh, desirable to succumb to hate. But later on, as I've uh, lived my life and as I've read so many books, so many resources, so many uh, ex heard so many experiences of my compatriots, I've, real I've come to this uh, realization and some uh, somehow uh, life motto that hate feeds hate. Just one uh, anecdote came into my mind, which I would like to share with you. One year I was, I was driving my mother back to our uh, home village. And on the way we passed through the majority Serb villages. And you see people roaming around. And we passed through one of these villages and I noticed all people, uh, mostly women, they were doing uh, their chores around their homes and going after their pigs and cattle and hens. And, and I noticed that they were all wearing black. And without having any negative intentions or added meaning to my words, I just kind of blurted out, why are they all in black? It looks so depressing. To which my mother so harshly responded, do not jump into conclusions. Everybody has their own pain to carry. So I had no intention of philosophizing about it. It just came out of me. She stopped my, uh, my thoughts not to go into prejudice. So I'm hopeful and I have a reason to be hopeful because I've met so many people from either side who went through the tragedies of, uh, of their own sort that if we succeed to eliminate this hateful talk from our media, from our policy makers, that this society can become much more humane and much more happier to live within. You were listening to Ideas. This episode was produced by Pauline Holdsworth, Nahid Mustafa, and me, Nala Ayed, with help from Philip Coulter. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.